Well, now this evening we come to um, the third major division of this little book of Malachi, which we have entitled The Lord's Challenge and Promise and the End of Faithfulness to Him in the Light of His Coming. We have already covered the first three of the subsections, chapter 2, verse 17, The Weariness of the Lord, and chapter 3, verse 1, Christ's Coming Predicted, and from verse 2 to 5 of chapter 3, his purifying work. Now this evening, we come to the next uh, subdivision of this third uh, major division of this book, which we have entitled, The Lord's Challenge and Promise. The Challenge and the Promise of the Lord. From verse 6 to verse 12 if you will keep it open before you. The first thing I want you to notice about this section is the way that it opens in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The Lord's declaration of his unchanging character It is simply because of his everlasting love and his undying faithfulness that his Jacob-like children are neither forsaken nor destroyed. It is only because the Lord is rock-like in his character and because his love is not shifty or changeable that his children continue from generation to generation. And not only is it his love that is everlasting and his faithfulness which is undying, but his very purpose will not change. The purpose of God, the counsel of his will, is rooted in the unchangeable character of God. So this section opens with a declaration of the Lord's unchanging character, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the the bedrock of our continuance, of our preservation, and of our perseverance. And it is a very comforting thing, I'm sure, to recognize that... uh, we have got someone who doesn't change behind our salvation. Someone who doesn't save us one minute and decide not to save us the next. Someone who has not only loved us at the beginning but will continue to love us whatever happens. This is the, 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 the background, as it were, of all that the Lord is going to say in this section. And uh, we must also remember that um, this refers really back to the first opening um, verses of this book. In Malachi chapter 1, from verse 2 to 5, a declaration of the Lord's undying love for his own. You see, it is the reference to the sons of Jacob goes back to God's choice of Jacob in sovereign grace and love. And so the Lord, when he comes to challenge them and to make his promises to them, he first reminds them of his unchanging character. 
you would have thought, I would have thought, that really the Lord would have said, I do not change. Therefore, therefore, O sons of Jacob, I'm finished with you. Because I don't change, I am tired of your changeability. I'm tired of your ups and your downs. I'm tired of you blowing hot one day and cold the next. I'm tired of it all. But the amazing thing is, and this reveals to me the very character of God's love and grace, he says, I do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And then again, we must, uh, we must also underline the fact that his children are indeed Jacob-like. They are quite the opposite to the Lord in character. They are fickle in character. They are unstable in love. And they are unfaithful in practice. And Malachi um, takes, as it were, God's word and says to them, your very history is proof and evidence of the fickleness of your character and of the instability of your love and of the unfaithfulness of your way. In verse 7 you've got it. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And how true is all this of us? Do, doesn't our history, whether it is personal or corporate, doesn't it reveal a record such as this of fickleness and instability and unfaithfulness? I wonder whether there is a person in this room, if we knew everything, uh, I wonder whether there is a person in this room whose record is not like this. One that is up and down, changeable, changeable. And yet, is it not also true that the very reason you and I continue, the very reason we're here this evening, is because he does not change. And because our salvation and our continuance and our final standing before him in glory is rooted in his undying faithfulness and love. Oh, I say, how great is his love and his mercy. Well, this is the opening, as it were, the opening declaration of this passage. We are reminded again of the Lord's unchanging character. Then I want you to notice the challenge of his love growing out of this declaration. And it's contained in three words. Verse 7, return, verse 10, bring, and verse 10 again, prove. Three words in which this uh, challenge is found, a threefold challenge. Return, bring, prove. Now, though outwardly pious and careful to observe the law, yet inwardly, the children of God here described in this chapter, the Lord's children in Malachi's day, inwardly they had departed from the Lord. And you know, it's so possible outwardly to be ob observing the right practice 
outwardly in substance, in principle, to be doing the right thing, and yet inwardly to have departed from the Lord. They, in fact, says Malachi, says God, they are robbing him. And the word he uses is a very strong word indeed. It is the word to defraud. But I like the way Moffat puts it even more. He says, you are cheating me. You are cheating God. And this is exactly the idea behind this word. They are defrauding God. They are cheating God. They were cheating the Lord of his right. But how? But how? If the Lord were to say to you this evening, you are cheating me of my rights, you are defrauding me, you might well ask as I would, but how, Lord, how are we cheating thee? And the Lord says, in the matter of tithes and offerings, verse 8, will a man rob God, or will man cheat God? Yet you are cheating me. But you say, how are we cheating me? In your tithes and offerings. They were cheating God in their tithes and in their offerings. Now just wait. They may have been bringing in the tithe, but they were not bringing in the whole tithe. If you look at verse 10, the Lord says, bring ye in the whole tithe, or the full tithe. They were bringing in part of the tithes, and this was the whole point. You see, they were, they were offering this as a sop to their, con to their conscience, like many of us. We're prepared to go two-thirds of the way with the Lord, because we feel that's much better than not going any way with him at all. But we're not really prepared to go the whole way. And the point is that God says we're cheating him. We're cheating him as far as God is concerned, all or nothing. And so here, you see, it's not a question they weren't bringing in tithes at all, or they weren't offering offerings. It was more a question that they were not bringing in the whole time. Um, the sense of this passage, if I may so put it, is one of deceitfulness. And it is contained in this word, defraud. Now, when a man thieves, when a man or a woman robs, they have to do it subtly. They have to do it deceitfully. You can't rob boldly, no. <coughs> the, the whole atmosphere of thieving, of robbery, of, defra of, of uh, defraudery, is to somehow or other do it on the sly. And the word cheating, I think, gets right to the root of that. Someone who's a cheat, someone who's doing something deceitfully, under the cover of perhaps right practice, seemingly everything's good, but they are cheating underneath. And it's a very, very solemn fact that in verse 9 we discover that such deceitfulness brings a curse upon us. Now, this is a matter of cause and effect. It's not that God flings out curses because he likes to curse people. But in fact, curse, the curse is an effect that comes from a cause. 
if you and I are not transparent, we reap a curse. We reap trouble. If you and I are not sincere, then in the end, we, we reap a harvest of insincerity. Be not mocked, brethren, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And you see, it is very true that if we cheat God, then we bring upon ourselves a curse. We, we somehow, our cheating is the cause, and the curse is the effect. If you read verse 9, read verse 9, you will read, it says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are cheating me, the whole nation of you. Cause and effect. And then in verse 10, you have another cause and effect. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Obedience reaps blessing. And you know, this is a very, very simple little uh, lesson, but it's one that takes sometimes, some Christians, a lifetime to learn, and I doubt sometimes whether some even learn it then. This simple little truth contained in the hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Obedience always earns blessing. It always brings blessing in the end. Now, what was the tie? We might as well just look at this for one minute. What was the tithe? The tithe was one-tenth of all the produce and property of a man. One-tenth of all the produce and property. It included crops, it included fruit, it included herds, it included flocks. And it was paid annually to the Lord in his temple, and was placed in the storehouses of the temple. Now, if you look at Leviticus and um, chapter 27, there are a number, of course, of scriptures connected with tithing, but this is the one that we'll just turn to. Leviticus 27, verse 30 and verse 32, we read this, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will redeem aught of his tithe, he shall add unto it the fifth part thereof. What does that mean? Just explain. It means that if a man lived a long way from the temple and couldn't transport a tenth, for instance, of his olives, quite a job to transport it right down the length of the country, he was, uh, he was allowed to redeem it for money. In other words, sell it for money. But he had to add one-fifth more to the price. Then he bought it in cash. And he could do that, in fact, with the flocks and the herds. You could put it into money, adding a fifth. And verse 32, And all the tithe of the herd of the flock, whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. Now, this is only one scripture concerning tithing, but it's enough for you to see that it was one-tenth of all the produce and property of a man. It was paid annually to the Lord in his temple. What did it signify? It signified that the people were not their own, but belonged to the Lord. 
and that they were only stewards of all that they possessed. There is a very wrong idea that tithing means one-tenth belongs to the Lord and the rest is yours. It doesn't mean that at all. The one-tenth was, as it were, an earnest, um, a, a sign, um, a symbol that the rest belonged to the Lord. It was what you were but stewards of. And so this giving of the tenth to the Lord of everything was really a, a, a declaration, a testimony of the whole nation that they were the Lord's. And that everything they had was his. They were not their own, but they were bought with a price. In fact, I think we could put it this way, tithing was a recognition of the supreme proprietorship of the Lord. The Lord was the proprietor of the land. It belonged to him. All the land. Every part of it. The Lord was the owner of the people. They all belonged to him by the land slain in Egypt. And by the exodus through the Red Sea. They were his. By the covenant that he had made with them at Sinai, when he had caused his name to dwell amongst them, they were his own people by the shedding of blood. And so this really was a recognition of his supreme proprietorship and rights. The Lord had rights. And he had declared them to be his people. And now he had rights. And he had a right to them to their time, to their money, to their being, to their health, to their homes, to their crops, to their everything. There was, these were his rights. He was king of his people. Now, what is the offering mentioned in verse 8? For God says here, you are, how, are you, how are we robbing thee? But you say, how are we robbing thee? In your tithes and offerings. Now this is most interesting. This is one of the things you will not discover by just reading the text. This offering here is not the offering. It's not the same Hebrew word that is used all the way uh, through Malachi for the other offerings. It is an entirely different word. And it is elsewhere translated heave offering. It is the technical word used in the scriptures for the heave offering, which was a particular offering amongst the offerings. It had a particular significance. It is a term generally signifying a gift or a contribution made to the Lord and his service alone. Now, this is a little difficult, so if you'll follow me carefully. What have I said? This heave offering, which is very strange, you know, there are two offerings which might uh, bewilder some of you, a wave offering and a heave offering. And we have not yet discovered the full significance of either. If only we could find a little bit more about contemporary history, a little bit more uh, that would throw more light upon what is the wave offering and the heave offering. The general description is that the heave offering was one that was heaved up and down before the Lord, in his tabernacle, and the wave offering was waved from side to side. However, I believe Ellison, one to others, questioned whether that is so now, and wonder whether the Hebrew doesn't mean heave or wave, but means really contribu con contribution. 
gift or contribution. However, whatever it is, let's just look at it. It does signify a gift or contribution made to the Lord and his service alone. Very swiftly, Exodus 25. Now, I'm going to read this in the American Standard Version because here you've got the word heave offering, actually in the text. Chapter 25. Now, really, you ought to read from verse 2 to 8, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read from just verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel that they take for me an heave offering of every man whose heart maketh him willing. He shall take my heave offering. Verse 3. This is the heave offering which shall take them. Gold, (coughs) silver, brass. And then if you go all the way through, you'll find it everything out of which the tabernacle was made. Everything out of which the tabernacle was made. From gold and silver and the fine linen and the the, the blue and the scarlet and the purple. Everything was to be given. And it was all called a heave offering. The Lord called it my heave offering. Now, just to confuse you, chapter 29, verse 27. Now we find it used in a slightly different connection. Uh, this is a little difficult to understand, I'm sure, for the uninitiated. Verse 27, Thou shalt sanctify the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, which is waved and which is heaved up, of the ram of consecration, even of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons as their portion forever from the children of Israel, for it is a heave offering. And it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel of the sacrifices of their peace offerings, even their heave offering unto the Lord. Now this was evidently part of, uh, of uh, the ram of the, for the consecration of the priests, and uh, part of its breast was waved and part of its thigh was heaved, And the heave offering, we're told, was a gift made to the Lord alone, and he, in turn, gave it to his priests so that they might feed upon it. Well, that's something else. Now let's just look at Leviticus 7. Leviticus 7. Verse 11. Um, Where do you want to read from verse 11 to 14? This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which one shall offer unto the Lord. Now, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to read verse 14. And of it he shall offer one out of each oblation for a heave offering unto the Lord. It shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. Now, here there were cakes. These were little cakes that were made with the peace offerings. And one out of each, one cake out of each oblation was a heave offering unto the Lord. And that was given to the Lord, and then the Lord passed it, as it were, on to the priest. Well, now, it seems, then, that it's a term generally signifying a gift or contribution made to the Lord in his tabernacle for him and his service alone. But just wait. That's, uh, if it was just that, it would make it simpler. What is a heave offering? It's, the word is also associated with first fruits. First fruits. Now, just uh, look at Numbers 15. Numbers 15, 19. Uh, Then it shall be that when ye eat of the bread of the land, ye shall offer up a heave offering unto the Lord. Of the first of your dough, ye shall offer up a cake for a heave offering, as the heave offering of the threshing floor. So shall ye heave it. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? 
of the first of your dough ye shall give unto the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. So it's first fruit. First fruits. Now, <clears throat> another, another scripture, chapter 18, verse 8. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, and I, behold, I have given thee the charge of my heave offerings, even all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing, and to thy son there is a portion forever. Verse 11. And this is done, the heave offering of their gift, even all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them unto thee, and to thy sons, and to thy daughters with thee, as a portion forever. Every one that is clean in thy house shall eat thereof. All the best of the oil, all the best of the vintage, of the grain, the first fruits of them which they give unto the Lord, to thee have I given them. So evidently the heave offering here is associated with first fruits. And um, I'm not going to go on, but there are a number of other scriptures if you want them. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 6, verse 11, verse 17. And you will see that the heave offering is associated there with tithe. And the two are brought together, the tithe, uh, tithe and the heave offering. Now, <clears throat> why have we gone into all this? Well, because here in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, it more than probably has this meaning of first fruits. And I believe it is more than a coincidence that the Septuagint translates the word offering as first fruits and translates it simply as this, you have cheated the Lord in your tithes and first fruits. It would therefore have the same significance as tithes. The Lord's supreme proprietorship. The first fruit was different from the tenth in that it was the very first of everything. The first one of everything. And by the way, the tenth was only taken when the first fruit was taken out. It's another point. Uh, the first fruit was first removed and then the tenth was taken of all that remained. Now, the first fruit was, a, again, a recognition that the Lord owned everything, and upon him everything depended. It was a recognition of his ownership and our stewardship, as simple as that. Now, what is the Lord saying? Now, what is come back to Malachi. What does he mean? You are cheating me. But how, you say, but how are we cheating thee? in recognition of my ownership and of your stewardship. You are, you are contradicting my ownership and your stewardship. Now that really is the uh, key to this passage. The Lord declares that he is being cheated of what is his in a twofold way. Listen carefully. He is being cheated of what is his by creation and by redemption. Never forget, you and I are his by creation and by redemption. We're not doing the Lord a service, you know, when we get saved. Some people have got this marvellous idea that they're doing the Lord a tremendous favour. In, in getting saved, you know, for thing, well, you know, after all, I've wandered a long way, but I've come back to the Lord now, and I, he ought to be very pleased about it. 
you're his by creation, and this is the solemnity of the great white throne of judgment, when every man will stand before God and answer to him, for God holds every man responsible and answerable on the ground that he has created them and he has redeemed them. So you see, here is a double claim of the Lord, by creation, by redemption. And he declares in this passage that he is being cheated of what is his by creation and redemption. And he challenges them, therefore, to return, to bring, and to prove. Firstly, verse 7, he challenges them to return. Now what does he say? He says, return unto me. Return unto me. And this is very interesting. The Lord's challenge is a challenge of love. He doesn't want them to return to things. He doesn't want them to return to correct procedure. He doesn't just want them, first of all, to bring in the whole tithe. This is the interesting point. He doesn't just say, bring in the whole tithe. The first thing he says is, return unto me, and I will return unto you. It's not the whole tithe the Lord wants. The Lord can do without our the Lord doesn't want all your time and all your money. My goodness me, can easily do without you. What the Lord wants is you. Bringing in the whole tithe is for your own well-being, as we shall see in a moment. The first thing the Lord says is, I don't want you to return to things. I don't want you to return to correct procedure. I don't want you to return to holy practice or even holy living. The first thing I want you to do is to return to me because I am the source of all. If you try to bring the whole tithe in, oh, you'll get yourself into such a mess if you don't return to me first. If you try to tackle with an unholy, tackle an unholy life or try to deal with compromise in your life, you'll make such a mess of it. Don't do it. Return to me first. Get right with me. Get right through to me. See that your devotion is in the right place. See that I am in the right place. Return unto me. That's the first thing. Because the Lord says, I'm the source of it all. The second thing here is to notice in verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. This is the thing. When the Lord has issued his first challenge, return unto me, the second is to do with his house. Often, you know, we try to, we try to reach the head through one another. We must hold fast the head and then we find the body. The first thing to do is to get rightly related to the Lord Jesus. And if you're rightly related to the Lord Jesus, you'll soon be rightly related to one another. The other way is always to end in chaos and confusion. So, the second thing the Lord challenges them is to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, notice it. He wants them to bring not part of, but the whole tithe, deliberately to his house. Deliberately. Into the storehouse. I believe this requires an exercised will. To get back to the Lord requires grace, but to bring the whole tithe into the house requires an exercised will. I have got to say to the Lord, what is 
his is in. He's going to have it. And so I bring the whole tithe into the house. Now listen, this is the interesting thing. The Lord wants us to contribute to the fullness of his house. The fullness. Why must we bring in a full tithe? The whole tithe? Because he wants there to be bread in my house. Read what it says, verse 10. That there may be food or bread in my house. Now listen, if every one of us only brings part of the tithe, before long we shall all suffer. Because the house of God will be impoverished and we shall all feel the poverty of the house of God. And we are talking, of course, of the body of Christ, not of anything of bricks and built with bricks and mortar or an organization or anything like that. We are talking of the body of Christ. Every one of us has to contribute something. We must bring the whole tide of what is his into, into the family so that there may be fullness in his house. Thirdly, and this is very wonderful, verse 10, prove, to prove, the Lord in so doing. I love the way it's put here, <clears throat> verse 10, and thereby put me to the test, says the <coughs> Revised Standard Version, uh, thereby, and thereby put me to the test. Now that's beautiful, really. Thereby, how? By returning to the Lord and bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse we thereby put him to the test. What do we do? He has not a leg, if I may so speak of God. He has not a leg to stand upon for not blessing us. Not one single possibility of not fulfilling all his words and all his promises. So he says, and thereby put me to the test. I think there's something very wonderful about that. What is the word prove? It is, as the Revised Standard Version uh, translates it, to put to the test or to try. Try me. Now, there is a wrong way of trying the Lord. We should always be careful of tempting the Lord. There's a lot in Scripture about tempting the Lord. There is a right way to put the Lord to the test. And we, do ne we can never put the law to the test in an arrogant spirit, presumptuous spirit. But we can put the law to the test by returning to him, making him the centre and sum of our life and bringing the whole tithe into the house. We've put the law to the test, we're trying him. And what is it? Oh, it means to discover by test the faithfulness of God's love and word. Have you discovered by testing? the faithfulness of God's love and word. How? By returning and by bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. You can discover by a trial, by approving the faithfulness of God's love and the faithfulness of God's word. Whatsoever the promises are, in Christ is the yea and the amen. Then I want you to notice, lastly, in this, pas in this particular passage, the promise of his love. It's a fourfold promise. I'm very simply going to uh, just underline it. First of all, it is in verse 7, the first part of the promise, I will return to you. Now that's very wonderful. If you've departed from the Lord, it means you're without the Lord. You've got the things, you've got the salvation, you've got 
quite a lot of the of the blessings in one sense, but you've not got the Lord. The presence of the Lord's gone. And the Lord says, his first thing he promises, after his challenge, if we fulfill what the conditions of his challenge, then he says, I will return to you. And remember, the Lord is the salvation and the life and the power and the glory of his own. Once the Lord's gone, we're nothing in them. When God departed from the Jewish people, they became nothing. They have left nothing to us. Egypt has left great, great monuments in stone and much else. But what have the Jewish people left to us? The only thing they've left to us is the Word of God. And that in itself is an eloquent reminder that the glory of God's people is himself. And you see, uh, he says, I will return to you. The second thing, verse 10, abundant blessing. Now this is rather wonderful. Now do mark in this uh, last part of verse 10, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. There is some difficulty in this verse because it is so remarkable. First of all, note the phrase, windows of heaven. If you turn back to Genesis 7 and verse 11, you will find the windows of heaven are mentioned in the flood, in Noah's flood. The fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now the Septuagint puts floodgates, and that's why often in some of our old hymns you get this word floodgates, because it became very fashionable at one time in the history of God's people to look to the law for the floodgates of blessing to be opened. Very beautiful and descriptive phrase. The Septuagint actually translates the Genesis 7 verse 11 uh, occurrence of this word by the word floodgates. But I like the way that the um, that Moffat and Rotherham translate windows of heaven here. They translate it sluices. The sluices of heaven. Whether I will draw up the sluices of heaven and allow to pour out to you uh, a blessing that you will not be able to contain it. Now, there's something very wonderful, really, in this whole idea. The windows of heaven, they're not just ordinary windows. They're not the, the, the eastern window or the lattice windows. It's not that idea at all. The idea is that these windows were the things through which the floods could come, the rain could come. A cloudburst could come. The idea was of the floodgates, the sluice, the dam that was holding back the great oh, abundance, as it were, of the flood. And it was controlled by a sluice gate. And when the sluice gate was opened, the flood poured through. And so, really, Malachi is saying to us, look, put me to the test. Put the Lord to the test and see whether he won't draw up the sluice gate and allow a flood of fertilizing, life-giving waters to pour out over the wilderness and absolutely renew and revive everything. Now this is the promise. And then again, this verse is even more wonderful because of the little phrase, not room enough. If you're in your authorised version and in your revised version, it says, there shall not there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now, the Hebrew is literally, till there is no sufficiency. Till there is no sufficiency. 
And you see, it's, amb it's ambiguous. And no one has yet been able to decide, is it speaking of God? Is it speaking of God? In other words, is it saying, I will open the sluices of heaven and pour you out a blessing till I've got no more sufficiency, till I can do it no more. In other words, ad infinitum. You'll have such a blessing that it will be as infinite and as exhaustless as the person of God. Till there is no sufficiency. Or does it speak of his people? Till they have no more sufficiency. In other words, till they've just not got room enough. Well, of course, our authorised version and others have felt that the only reverent way of translating it uh, was to, of course, uh, say that it was ourselves, that uh, uh, the, the Hebrew must refer to the fact that we, we will not have room sufficient enough to take the blessing. But whatever way you look at it, it is marvellous. And often when the Hebrew is ambiguous and it's got this double meaning, it can be taken both ways. And it's so meant. And really the Lord is saying, I'll pour you out a blessing so great so, so exhaustless that you'll just be overwhelmed. You will have, you'll not have room enough to, to, to take it. Well, I believe this is a tremendous promise. What a promise of, of love. First, I'll return to you and secondly, I'll open the sluices of heaven and you'll have a blessing that you'll not be able to contain as great as God himself. Thirdly, the third part of the promise, verse 11, a rebuked devourer. Probably this is a reference to the locust, to mildew, and to blasting, the three worst scourges of ancient Israel. And the Lord says, I'll rebuke the devourer. Oh, do you know anything about a devourer like that? Something that suddenly creeps up into your life and blasts everything so that all that perhaps the Holy Spirit was doing is spoilt and marred. Fruit that was coming is cast suddenly before it's time, before it's ripe. Oh, God says, I'll rebuke it. I'll rebuke it. When, when you return and when you bring the whole tithe in and when you thereby put me to the test. And lastly, verse 12 has a promise of delightsomeness. I don't know how to put this. Uh, it says, And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. Delightsomeness, attractiveness, winsomeness. Oh, how few Christians are winsome. That's the sad fact of the matter. Very few Christians are winsome. Why? Because the Lord loves them. They're saved. Of course they're saved. I don't want to be rude. But you take some people, take John and Betty Stan. I once heard one director of a mission call them the ugliest couple he'd ever set his eyes on. And yet he told us, when God got into those two lives, there was a beauty in them that even the communists that shot them could not deny. So that the communists who shot them were led to the Lord. Yes. Take dear Gladys Hale. What is Gladys Hale if you've seen her? Just a little cockney woman. And yet look at that indescribable beauty that has got into that woman. The Lord is her glory. The Lord is her life. And that woman is winsome in a way that a thousand missionaries are not winsome. A thousand missionaries are not winsome. 
And, and even the nationals of a country know it. They know it. And they're attacked it. Oh, if you and I only realise however much we doll ourselves up, however much we dress ourselves up, however much we try to make ourselves sweet and nice and all the rest of it, try to talk the language of the world, try to be like the world, we can't really be winsome or attractive. They sneer at us. They sneer at us. But if you and I could only just simply see that the Lord is our glory, and when the Lord really gets on the inside, there is an attractiveness that brings the world to us. They know. Well, this is a promise. Not, uh, not just a <coughs> possibility, it's a promise. If you will return, if I will return, if we will bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, if we will prove the Lord, <clears throat> then the Lord will do just this for us as he's done it for others. And we must remember all this is in the light of his coming that the Lord challenges his own. In the light of his coming, his coming, as it is already said in chapter 3 and verse 1, he is coming. Therefore the Lord challenges us. I'm coming. Return. Bring and prove. Now the second, uh, the next um, division, the last division of this major division of Malachi is what we have entitled the end of faithfulness from verse 13 of chapter 3 to verse 3 of chapter 4. In this passage the faithful remnant are contrasted with the unfaithful majority and the end of faithfulness is thrown into clear and sharp relief by a very dark background. In fact it is quite remarkable, the contrasts that there are in this passage. The passage, if you will look at it, opens with the Lord's arraignment of ungodly and unholy conversation. And I think, really, we'll all have to take note of this because the tongue is an unruly member. And it is the one part of us that hardly anyone can tame. It's said in one place that if a man makes no mistakes, in James it says if a man makes no mistakes in what he says, that man is a perfect man. So this has got something to say to us all. The Lord opens this very wonderful passage by painting a dark background. He arranged ungodly and unholy conversation. <coughs> now I want you to note first the word stout. Your words have been stout against me. It's an unusual kind of way of putting it. Your words have been stout. What does it mean? The word stout, the Hebrew word translated stout, means hard or strong. And really, the Lord is speaking of their unyielding and hard attitude, which is revealed in their conversation. Now, don't ever let anyone try to pull the wool over your eyes in this matter of conversation. Again and again people say to me, well of course it was only words. Words reveal attitudes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaker. Why do you think the Lord's going to judge us? By our words. Because our words mean a lot to God. Even if we try to get out of what we say. Now, note too, that it's very interesting 
that the form of the Hebrew verb translated spoken in verse 13, how have we spoken against thee, is the one used of reciprocal action. In other words, as Rotherham so translates it, and as others have put in the margin, it really means they were speaking against the Lord in speaking with one another. Now, this is why our translators have had such great difficulty, because in fact it's obvious that the passage is, you have spoken against me. But in fact, the word, the verb actually means they've spoken with one another. They've either spoken with each other, or they've spoken in small groups. And it is even more interesting that it is the exact same word that is used and the same form of the verb in verse uh, 16, where it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke oft with one another. It's exactly the same. Only there, they haven't got the difficulty. They're not speaking to the Lord. They're obviously speaking with one another. So now we've got something which is a contrast. In this passage, God contrasts one kind of speaking with one another with another kind of speaking with one another. And he begins this whole passage with an arraignment of ungodly and unholy talk. There's no doubt that this is related to verse 16. And you know there's a little proverb, a little English proverb, which beautifully puts into a nutshell the meaning behind this passage. Birds of a feather flock together. Birds of a feather flock together. Here you've got one group of people whose word says the Lord is stout against me. And no wonder they say, how have we spoken against thee? We've not talked to thee, Lord. We've talked with each other. How have we talked against thee? And here you've got another lot who are not even spoken of as speaking to the Lord. They're speaking to each other. Now, I wonder whether we attach enough importance to our talk. How we need to be careful of such conversation as described here. The more so, since it so often is disguised as fellowship. In fact, it's a deadly poison which contaminates everything and everyone involved. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that seemingly all right, supposed to be in fellowship and all that, but afterwards you felt distinctly unclean. Somehow you just wished, you don't know what it is, but you just wish you'd never been part of that conversation, you've never had anything to do with it. Why do we feel like that? Well, I can tell you why we feel like that. The seriousness of this kind of conversation lies in the fact that God says it is against me. The people who are talking with one another do not realize that it's against him. But in fact, it is against the Lord. Many of us think we get away with things we say to one another. We would never dare to say them directly to the Lord. Never dare. But we think we can get away with them when we say them to each other. And we forget that the Lord hears all and is the silent listener 
in every conversation. No wonder the psalmist once said that, that the Lord would set a guard over his lips, a watch over his lips. What are these people being questioning? Well, let's look at it in verse um, 14 and 15. They have questioned uh, the ways of the Lord amongst themselves. And this is what they've said. Devoted service, they've said, is futile. Devoted service seems futile. Uh, since uh, it pays, it seems to pay no dividends. Why walk up an unpopular path of sacrifice, of difficulty, of self-denial? Uh, for it doesn't get you anywhere, does it? This is what they're saying, doesn't get you anywhere. Why put on a penitent garb and walk before the Lord in mourning? What does it do? And then look at this. This is something I've heard many a person say. The evil and the proud are getting on and are, and, and are happy. How many times I've heard that. Oh, look at so-and-so. Look, it doesn't seem much point of being a Christian going this way. Look how they're getting on. They seem to be very happy. Now, this is the kind of talk which the Lord uh, puts his finger on. It's um, also, I think, very... Uh, much worth noting that in verse 15 we have the word in the authorised version tempt, they tempt God and again in the American Standard Version and the English Revised Version in this version we have put to the test it is in fact the exact same word used in verse 10 prove me now herewith whether I will not open the sluices of heaven and pour you out of it. In other words, what does this mean? What? As if the people were saying, put God to the test. Indeed, evil doers put him to the test and they escape. Now this was the attitude of the people. <laughs> he says, put the Lord to the test. Look at these evil doers. Look at these proud and arrogant people. Look what they do. Aren't they putting the law to the test in another kind of way? And they get away with it. This is the talk. Yet, thank God, there was another kind of speaking one with another. In verse 16. Those who feared the Lord and had thought upon his name had been drawn together in true fellowship. And this also the Lord had heard and recorded. We have already said much about fearing the Lord and his name and thinking upon his name. We ought perhaps to repeat here that this fear is not a cringing terror of the Lord, but it is a humble, worshipful reverence. That's the only way I can describe it. And the Hebrew which is translated to think upon or thought upon the name has the meaning, as we have already pointed out, to count, to consider, to make account of, to reckon, to explore, investigate, reckon up the wealth that is thine, as one of our hymns put it, puts it. Let us also say that both these things, fearing the Lord and fearing his name, and thinking upon his name, are the, are, are the product of true devotion to
to and love for the Lord. One is the tender, sensitive reverence of love. If you love someone, you're very tender about it. You can't just be brutal. There is the tenderness of love. And this is the idea behind this word fear. The tender reverence and sensitive reverence of love. I've forgotten who put this. I read it somewhere. Frightened to alienate the object of your love. That kind of fear. Frightened to alienate. (coughs) And on the other hand, you have the reflection, the exploration, and the insight of love thinking upon his name. Love, you know, explore. And it has an insight of its own. And uh, it reflects. It's interesting because one of these is more negative and the other is more positive, but neither can be imitated. You try to imitate the fear of the Lord. You can't do it. It's either genuine or or you can't do anything about it. You try and think upon the name of the Lord, you won't get anywhere unless it's genuine. It can't be imitated. These two things have led to a very different kind of speaking uh, to one another than that recorded in verse 13. Here, you've got the fellowship of understanding. You've got a fellowship of love. You've got a fellowship of suffering. You've got a fellowship of faith in days of breakdown and failure. These are people who are suffering with the Lord together. These are people who've got an understanding of the Lord and his purpose together. These are the people who've got a mutual faith that one day the Lord's going to act and the whole thing is going to be put right and in that day it'll all be worth it. This is a fellowship like that. And uh, what can we say is the result of such faithfulness to the Lord? In what does it really end? Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? How does this faithfulness end? Well, the Lord points out, and we might as well understand it clearly, for want of it, many of us get into trouble. The Lord points out that its true end will only be seen at his coming. Until then, it is a walk of faith. Will you look at chapter 3 and verse 17, and look at the phrase on the day when I act. You see, the Lord knows just what he's doing. There's a day when he's going to act, and until then it may seem a heavy delight last. It may seem it's not worth it, but when I act, look, look what's going to happen in the day when he acts. They shall be mine, my special possession. I will spare as a father spares the son that serves him. Then again, uh, chapter 4 and um, verse 3, again, last part, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. What's going to happen then? They're going to go out like frisking calves into the sunshine of God's presence and face on the day when I act. But there may be a long, dark night before. It's a walk of faith and we must understand that if you and I want to question God then we can question God and we can lose our inheritance we can have the other kind of conversation always querying, always murmuring, always moaning always discouraging the saints 
always bringing in a pall of death. We can be like that if we want to. Or we can walk by faith, seeing right through to the end and enduring of seeing him who is invisible. Now, we must close. But what does it result in? It results in three things that we can leave with you. Three things which are abundantly clear. The first, verse 16, chapter 3. Recorded in a book of remembrance. A record in a book of remembrance. Well, now, this word remembrance is very interesting. It's the same word used elsewhere in scripture, scripture memorial. You remember where it speaks of something as a memorial unto the Lord? Um, Exodus 28, verse 29, Numbers 10, verse 10, if you want to look at them. You'll see this same word used. A book of memorial or a book of remembrance. I like the word remembrance better. It is a registry of the names and a record of the conversations of the faithful remnant. Well, perhaps some of you might smile at the thought of some angel recording all the conversations that the Lord hears. Yet there is a registry of the names and a record of the conversations. I believe, of course, it includes more than the conversations. It includes the acts and much else. But it's a record. Then I want you to note that all is recorded so that there can be no overlooking of reward or, or commendation. That's why it's recorded. The idea is to impress us with the fact that the Lord's not going to overlook not one conversation that brought him joy. Not one phrase that passed from lip to lip that somehow or other lightened his own heart. No, the Lord's not going to overlook any of it. It's going to be rewarded and it will be commended. I do want you to note, too, the little emphasis in verse 16. The Lord heeded and heard. Why does the Lord say two things are the same? Heeded and heard or hearkened and heard. Well, the thought is, the first word, heeded, is to pay attention to. The Lord actually is paying attention to what is being said and listening. He's very, very interested in the conversation of the saints. Generally speaking, I think we, um, we associate God's records and books with judgment. But you know, we forget the Lamb's book of life, which has nothing to do with judgment at all. And we forget this other record, the book of remembrance, which is an eternal record of that which brought joy to the Lord. Now, do I know I shouldn't spend any more time on this, but have you ever thought, why does the Lord make a record? Have you ever thought what we shall do in heaven? Do you think, for instance, that we will have books? Well, of course, you probably never thought about it. But I wonder what kind of life life will be in heaven. Will it be totally different to what we've got done here? I'm not saying we necessarily have the same kind of deal we've done here, but there'll be a lot that will be the same. After we're human beings. I can't think that we're going to spend all eternity with empty minds. I can well believe that there will be books. And some of those books will be built on the records of this book of remembrance. And we shall read about something that the Lord got so much joy over. Some simple saint here who talked with another saint. And there it is all recorded. All recorded. So and so and so and so and so. That's what it means. It's not being silly. 
even if you don't believe that it's just a symbolic way of putting it, this is what he actually says symbolically. That such and such a name, and such and such a name, and such and such a name, in the parlour, or in the kitchen, or out in the garden, had a talk on such and such a date, at such and such an hour, and they said so and so and so and so and so and so and so. All recorded. Oh, I, it will be a wonderful thing. I find it a wonderful thing to read biography. And I cannot believe that in heaven, biography will be any the less wonderful. When we're in, how wonderful it will be to meet some of the saints up there and to be able to hear not only from their lips but be able to read a record of how they were saved, what they said, how they overcame the inner story. Do you know, no biography's got the inner story yet. We only read what people have heard and what they've written but the Lord could write some biographies and we could see the inside story and all the marvels of grace. Well, that's one thing. A record, a record in the book of remembrance. The second thing is in uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, made a peculiar treasure. Now, will you just look at your version? I don't know what versions you're all using, probably different ones, but it's a very interesting word, this word peculiar treasure. In the authorised version, it's jewels. In the authorised version, margin, it's special treasure. In the English revised version, it is peculiar treasure. In the American standard version, even thine own possession. In the American Revised Standard Version, my special possession, and Moffat puts it, my own prized possession. The Hebrew word means acquired property or treasure, and has the sense of personal and exclusive ownership and value. Something that, that is yours exclusively and you put a lot on it. Uh, you want to note the American Standard Version, the American Revised Standard Version, they put it like this, they shall be mine, my special possession. That's the idea, you see. It's not that all the Lord's children are going to be his, aren't they? But these are going to be his in an especial way. There's something intimate and exclusive about this. I can only give you these scriptures if you want to look at them. They're found in Ecclesiastes 2.8. You've got the same word used. Treasure of the kings. Solomon speaks of bringing the treasure of the kings in Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 3 is the key to it. David says, From my love for the Lord and his house, of my own personal treasure, I will give silver and gold. Now that's the idea, my own personal treasure. Now the Lord says, in that day, this faithful remnant will be my own personal treasure. Something, something standing in a, in, a, in a peculiar relationship to himself. Now the word peculiar means belonging to or exclusive to. Peculiar to. They are, they are exclusively here in a way that is different to any others. You know, in many ways, this word is used elsewhere in Deuteronomy and Exodus and the Psalms, and it, it's usually translated my own possession, the people of my own possession. But, you know, in many ways, the authorised version has got nearer to the idea in its translation of this word by Jewel. Something peculiarly personal and treasured. The faithful remnant will become an especial and personal treasure of God, prized beyond all else by him. An object of incredible and eternal beauty and praise. One cannot but associate this with the city made of jewels. 
the bride of the Lamb. And such jewels have been produced and cut and polished through much suffering and difficulty. This goes back to this same chapter in the first part of it, the refining fires of the Lord. But here you are, my own jewels, the jewels that I make. And thirdly, this, this, the end of faithfulness results in going forth like gambling cards. A very striking illustration. Chapter 4, verse 2. Very swiftly, what is this third result? Well, in chapter 3, verse 17 and verse 18, the Lord answers their question, the people's question of verse 14. It's vain to serve the Lord. Uh, The evildoer and the proud get on and are happy. Now the Lord answers it. He says, it may appear that he is doing nothing, that it does not pay to serve the Lord, but it is the patience and long-suffering of God, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, that holds back. When he acts, it will be only too manifest what he has been doing. (laughs) Too late, it will suddenly be seen the Lord's been at work all along. That city that comes down out of heaven isn't the product of a moment. All along silently, through the long centuries of time, God has been at work. When he has seemed to be most inactive, he's been at work, producing treasure, gold, pearl, precious stone for that city. And when that day comes, when he acts, it will be manifest once and for all what he's been doing. And faith will be vindicated and unbelief will be astounded. The lines of demarcation will be eternally clear. See what the Lord says, verse 18, then once more you shall distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. It may not seem very clear now. Those who don't serve God seem to have a good time of it. Even the Christian. They seem to get away with a lot. The bad, the evil, they seem to get on for now. But when that day comes, when the day when he acts, appears, well, there'll be a clear line of demarcation between sheep and goats, between wheat and tare, between chaff and grain between wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, and silver, and precious stone. That will be eternally clear and manifest. And then again, I also want you just to note this. When the Lord comes, it will be as clear and manifest as the sun rising on a hot summer's day. Verse 2. The sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. Listen. He will arise, the Son of Righteousness, burning like a furnace. And he will reduce the evil and the wicked to ashes. And he will bring healing and joy to the redeemed. The Son of Righteousness does two things. It scorches to ashes the stubble that are the wicked and the evil. And brings healing and salvation and joy, deliverance, to those who are redeemed. Isn't it interesting that this word furnace comes in again? Wouldn't you prefer to know the Lord as a furnace now? A refiner's fire now? 
rather than know him like that then? Isn't it better to go through the fires with him now and wait for him then? Isn't it better to know him as a furnace now and the son of righteousness with healing in his wings then? Yes, this is a tremendous passage, really. And it would appear from these verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 that the Lord promises to preserve the faithful remnant from the general catastrophe of the end. And more than that, he will preserve them from the loss, not of their salvation, but of much else, which will overtake the careless saved when he finally appears. You know, you can suffer loss as a Christian, and you can lose your inheritance, but not your salvation. And the Lord promises here that that faithful remnant will be preserved from the actual catastrophe. I believe in a rapture. And I believe that suddenly, suddenly those who are faithful to the Lord are going to be taken away. And the last, final, awful phases of this age will be without those who have been faithful to the Lord. I don't know whether it will be all the Lord's people or only part. I say the faithful remnant, certainly. That of that we can be sure. And here the Lord says, I will spare them as a son spares, as a father spares the son that serves him. I'll spare them. They shall be mine, my own prized possession in the day when I act. Yes. In that day, the faithful remnant shall go forth like young calves, loosed from the stall early on a summer's day. That's the picture. They'll gamble. Gamble. The word is, means, it's rather almost amusing to find it in scripture, the word means to caper, to frisk, to bound about with, with endless energy and joy. Little calves kept through the dark night in the storm. And there's a summer sun coming up. And early in the morning as the sun goes up, they're let out and away they've gone ambling and frisking and capering all around the field in the very joy of the, of, the, of the rays of the sun. And this is the picture, a vivid and beautiful illustration that Malachi uses of the faithful remnant. When the Lord finally acts, when the Son of Righteousness arises, then you'll go forth, he says, frisking. You'll go forth capering. Oh my, when I think of some of the suffering and the affliction that is our lot down here and we seem to feel that we're all getting a lot of old maids and much else, you know, spirits, we just feel somehow, the, oh dear, the way, it's so difficult. To think of this promise, you'll go forth capering and frisking, bounding like young lads, uh, calves loosed from the stall. I think it's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of joyful gaiety. And believe me, God is a God of gaiety in the end. There'll be a day when there'll be gaiety, joyful gaiety. It's a picture of carefree liberty. Yeah. It's a picture of triumphant enjoyment. And it's a picture of glorious vindication. That awful dark night of suffering, of unpopularity, of pressure, of sorrow, of suffering, of being misunderstood, has passed. 
And for them, the sunrise of righteousness is the dawn of a new and eternal day. Now tell me, what are you living for? Now or then? These faithful few who talked together, they had this in common. They walked in faith in days of breakdown and failure because for them, Everything was bound up with the day when the Lord acts. Then that day for them will be the dawn of a new and an eternal day of joy and of freedom and of service without pain or sorrow or suffering or sin. Shall we pray?